Hi, this is Isa. I'm here to introduce the host, my mom, Elise. All right, let's start the show. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Elise Hugh. Listeners, I hope you and your loved ones are taking good care because obviously it's been a really tough few weeks leading into the summer with the recent mass shootings at a grocery store in Buffalo and at a school in Uvalde and others in Tulsa and Dayton. It's hard not to think about guns in America. When it seems like political action is immovable, one thing we have on our minds is culture and the people who wield tremendous power in American culture and what it looks like and how it feels, what our values are. They're in the entertainment industry. They're making film and TV and games. Hollywood exports stories about heroes with guns and cops who save the day as kind of the regular rhythm of things. What if storytellers, producers, the industry writ large, what if it imagined things differently? There's this idea of art imitating life and life imitating art. And I think what's really cool about the entertainment industry, it's like one minute it's one and then the other minute it's the other, you know. That's writer-producer Nadra Wittitala. She's worked in gaming, where first-person shooter games remain hugely popular. And now she's transitioned to television writers' rooms. While seeing guns on screen doesn't turn people into killers, and we want to be clear about that, we began our chat talking about the real power culture makers have in building worlds and shaping imaginations. There is responsibility and there's an ability for us to be the folks who are showing folks that, like, this is how we can create a world where guns and violence aren't at the forefront and aren't centered. You have worked a lot in gaming and now you are transitioning to TV writers' rooms. What do you think is the expectation when it comes to a lot of the games that are very popular out there and on procedurals for guns to just come into play as set pieces or as the answer? It's pretty normalized that in a cop show, a cop will have a gun. The gun will either be used um, and that will be like the center of the narrative Mm. is the use or misuse of that gun and what happens after it. Um, Or the gun will be in the possession of a civilian and it's the misuse or use of that gun too right i don't think i've seen a situation where someone has chosen to use the many other ways of conflict resolution that we've maybe been taught um the gun is always the first thing that that gets ignited right it's like i'm going to pull the gun out and then i'm going to see what happens right you know, i think that's always the story you know, one of the things that's so hard and really struck me about this period that we're in, Nadra, is that a lot of these killers who came in and murdered innocent people really imagined themselves as the center and the heroes of their own stories. Um, and then the response by a lot of the establishment has been to say, oh, we just need more cops with guns to stop the bad guys. And it seems like we're just on this cycle of an arms race, essentially. Yeah. How do we get off of that? Um, or how could culture play a role in getting off of that? Yeah, we're in a cycle of perpetual violence, and more violence does not help the situation. We did a lot of work, organizers did a lot of work to get police outside of schools. Um, and then I think now, after the horrific and tragic mass shootings, I think the quick response is like, let's just put the police in there without thinking about what that means and and without even consulting students and asking them if they feel more safe with police or not, right? Mm. So I think that, like, if we lessen this idea that cops are the good guys in the media and portraying that, then maybe 
in that case, um, life will imitate art and we'll begin to see it more. Bringing in cops into a school without critically thinking about what this does and, and how policing and violence affects students, to me, is just, I think, harmful. Is the Hollywood positioning of cops as good guys how you would define propaganda? Yes and no. I think it's Hollywood positioning of cops in general is propaganda to be. The moment you choose to center a police officer, the moment you choose to even have the police in a narrative, that to me becomes a cop show because there's no situation in which those people are not framed in a redemptive or good way. Um, and at the end of the day, these police forces have a say in which in how they're um, portrayed. Huh. So these cop shows aren't making these shows without input from the state and from the police. What are the challenges then of trying to imagine something different or writing or pitching stories that don't center heroes with, who carry guns? When pitching an abolitionist story or a story that doesn't that center the police or, or frame the police, I think people get really um, intimidated and just start to ask a lot of questions like, what does this world look like? Or what about where do we put all the... <laughs> The, the rapists or where do we put all the murderers? And it's like, why does your mind go directly to that, right? But let, why don't we start small and ask the simple questions like, is this police officer necessary or is this gun necessary? Um, and take it from there. I think, is it going to be received well? Probably not. Probably mm. it's going to make people uncomfortable. But I think that is what my, our job is, is to tell stories that make people uncomfortable, to get people to think differently. If we aren't being imaginative and if we are not helping you as an audience think differently, then are we even really doing our jobs? Why are we continuing to perpetuate the same cycles? How are you doing it in your work? How are you trying to challenge the norms? Aside from just being on a show that like doesn't center on all of these things, um, in my own work, my pilot is about a woman who has to choose between what side of capitalism she sits on. Oh. It's not a story that's anti-police. It's a story about a woman who doesn't need to put the police or violence first or even in any space of her being, right? It's a woman who's choosing to put other things first. And what does that world look like absent all those things? What was it like for you, though, trying to pitch and sell a story like this in the industry that values, you know, capitalist norms that we're used to right. and are often reflected on screen? Right. The capitalist norms that we're used to and also just things that get people excited. It's this adrenaline rush, right? Like when someone's playing a first person shooter, they're like, oh, I get to go kill somebody. Like mm. it's pretty wild if you think about it that we sensationalize these things. So then the idea is like, OK, well, then if we don't have these things, is the story is going to be boring. Well, no, it's not because... Stories about are about character. They're deep character meditations and character journeys. Yeah. But then as I started to create this world, as I started to envision this world about what it may look like, it started just to gain a little bit more traction and people were interested because for a moment, what was so grim and dark and just so like violent turned into something completely beautiful and imaginative and hopeful. And I think that is what we need. Are there other examples in Hollywood like this where showrunners are imagining something different um, or unpack our legal system in ways that don't use violence mindlessly? I think it's impossible to get rid of violence completely. Um, I think that there's a way to do a lot of these shows that talk about policing or talk about trauma or talk about a lot of these topics. An example of that is Damon Lindelof's Watchmen. Firearms release is authorized. Chief, you're making a mistake. It was incredibly violent in and of itself, right? Incredibly violent show, but you can tell 
that the writers and he took a lot of care in how in which that violence was portrayed mm-hmm. and in ways in which harmful stereotypes were not repeated. And, you know, we have a violent history. There's no way that we can just continue to move forward and not acknowledge that. Sure, but is, sure. is there a way we can put that on screen in an imaginative way, in a different way? Again, if we approach things from an imaginative perspective, if we continue to want to do things differently, I think that's just going to serve us better all around. Where are there places where it's possible or you're imagining a possibility for change or seeing things differently, but things stay frustratingly the same? I've, I've been approached a lot about films or TV shows where they're looking for writers to tell either a cop story or a terrorist story, but from the lens of a black Muslim woman, because I identify as a black Muslim woman. I grappled with it for a while. I was like, this is progress. They're no longer asking a white man to tell this story. They're asking me, like, I should feel happy. Um, until I really sat back and realized that, like, oh, no, why do we need another terrorist narrative? Why are you still obsessed with this thing? A lot of my career thus far has been saying no to things like that. It's been really hard. And I also can't take responsibility for the fact that it will get told, you know, because that's also what we grapple with. It's like, if I don't tell this story, someone else will. But that burden isn't on me. What then, just to go back to your excellent example about Watchmen, what kind of impact could the industry potentially make? in changing what we do about these really entrenched ideas, like how America thinks about guns. There's so many ways, like I said, to tell a very exciting, thrilling story without any violence, right? Mm. And that is what I want to see more of. I would love to see more an adrenaline rush, um, you know, whether it's like a, a dark comedy or satire or something that just like doesn't need all the violence, need all the guns in it to still take the audience into and through a thrilling ride, right? Yeah, Um, yeah, you could have an action thriller, but not have an AK-47 in it. Exactly. Exactly. Nadra Wudatala, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That was writer and producer Nadra Wittatala. You can find her writing in the L.A. Times and Bustle and more. Her TV pilot on prison abolition is currently in development. Coming up, we're moving away from television and games to the film industry to talk about why movies feel so long. That's after the break. The following message comes from NPR sponsor REI, who supports community-driven efforts to make positive change in the outdoors. For Chief Customer Officer Ben Steele, bringing people together is at the heart of this work. I think there are a lot of moments in our world today where the problems feel bigger than us. Uh, But when we come together, they're not bigger than us. So our goal is to put um, the positive impacts uh, that all of our philanthropic partners are making in front of more folks and frankly to make participating in that easier for more people in our community. So whether that's more ways to give, more ways to give their time, more ways to raise their voice, our job is to allow more folks to participate in creating positive impact and change at a societal level. To learn more and join REI in their work to protect and share life outside, go to REI.com slash better is out there. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Elise Hugh, and this past week I did something a lot of y'all did too. I escaped the heat, I sat down in a big comfy chair in a super dark theater with a giant tub of popcorn covered in that fake butter that gets all over my hands. 
and I watched Tom Cruise reach supersonic speeds in fighter jets. Yep, I'm a sheeple. I was one of the millions of people who helped Top Gun Maverick set the record for the biggest opening weekend for a movie ever. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage expectations. And sitting right next to me, just hooting and hollering, was my friend and yours, Sam Sanders. And while we've got a lot of hot takes on the film, that's not what I want to talk about. Halfway through the movie, when I wanted to take a bathroom break, I looked down at my watch and saw the time. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, we're only halfway through this thing. And that got me thinking something that creeps up every time I'm in a marathon movie. Why are movies so long these days? To be fair, Top Gun is only 2 hours and 11 minutes long. That's pretty short compared to other recent blockbusters. Dune, that was 2 hours and 35 minutes. No Time to Die, the latest James Bond film, 2 hours 43 minutes. There's just no time to die. And the most recent Batman clocked a whopping 2 hours and 56 minutes, nearly 3 hours long. It might not be scientific, but it feels like movies are getting longer. That's how Variety reporter Rebecca Rubin puts it. So as we head into the summer movie season, I sat down with Rebecca to unpack why we're seeing films that are long enough to need intermissions. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, thanks for having me. So Rebecca, just to start, how are long run times affecting movie going, if at all? Because it turns me off, but millions of people still saw Batman, for example. Yeah, what I found was interesting about that is that there's not really a huge correlation between movie lengths and perceived quality. If you look, two of the highest grossing movies of all time are Avengers Endgame and Avatar, which are both about three hours long. And then of all of the Oscar Best Picture winners in history, only one can be classified as a, quote, short movie, and that's Annie Hall. It's about an hour and a half. And so... What struck me about that is if a movie is good, audiences want to see it. And so um, what filmmakers, producers, people who make movies have come to understand is Mm -hmm. that when people are saying a movie is too long, there's actually something else going wrong with the movie. It can mean that parts are boring, parts are perceived as too repetitive, maybe the plot takes a really long time to get going. Yeah, you you know, you make a good point because a lot of older movies that came out when we were kids or before that are really long too. Um, like Gone with the Wind came out in 1939. That was a whopping three hours and 58 minutes. But I just want to point out it had an intermission. So when did you start noticing that contemporary movies were getting longer? I think that it struck me the most, uh, just anecdotally speaking, during the pandemic. I felt like my attention span just shrunk so much. And maybe it's because people were not going to the movies where you're forced to put your phone away. You're forced to have no distractions. And so I feel like me personally, um, regardless of quality, there were just very few things that were able to keep my focus, which is why I started to dig into this in the first place, because I felt like when people were watching movies, it was just one of those comments that came up a lot. Oh, it was so long. And then when the Batman came out, 
and I saw that the runtime was three hours and one minute, I thought, that's a long time to sit in a theater. And I did see that in theaters, and a lot of people saw that movie in theaters. You know, whoever the hell you are, you obviously grew up rich. Was it worth it? What? Compromising yourself for money. And while I actually did think it was a good movie, when I was two hours in, I looked at my watch and I said, there's still a full hour left of this. (laughs) What is driving why movies are getting so long these days? There are a bunch of different factors as to why this phenomenon is happening. Um, One of the ones that maybe makes the most sense is that these big budget superhero movies are really what's fueling the box office right now. Yeah, And so a lot of times these movies have big CGI heavy action sequences. And so some of the people I spoke to said that it's it's almost a way of saying like we've spent the money on this movie. A lot of them have budgets that are in the hundreds of millions. So we want to make people feel like they're paying for something that's worth it. And so that sometimes turns into just a bloat. fight. Yeah, a bloat basically. <laughs> yeah. Fight sequence that's really long. Um, and another reason is also streaming, which is really interesting because a lot of the appeal of working for a company like Netflix right now, if you're a big prestigious Mm -hmm. filmmaker like Martin Scorsese, you can go to Netflix and basically have free reign to do whatever you want. And so that's why he was able to make uh, The Irishman, which is three and a half hours long, which I I don't know about you, but I watched that movie in three sittings because it was so long. (laughs) Something funny happens to me. They're done. You understand that? And they know it because I got files. I got proof. I got records. I got tapes. Anytime I want, they'll be gone. I didn't even attempt it once I saw the TRT, (laughs) the total runtime. Yeah, and I think a lot of people were honestly um, scared by that. But when you are working with a traditional studio... It, it kind of takes away a little bit of their power because they need to give some leeway to entice these directors. So if they can just go to Netflix and do whatever they want, well, there needs to be a little something, a little bending to the limitations. Okay, well, we've talked about movies that have felt way too long. What about movies that were long but felt worthwhile? There, there, are, there are plenty of examples of movies that are really long, that are very beloved movies. Two that we mentioned earlier were Avatar and Avengers Endgame. Those did incredibly well at the box office. Avatar did very well at the Oscars. And there are, there are plenty of instances in between where there have been movies that would have been considered long, but they were very well received. And the way that that that's kind of determined is through test screenings. Huh. And so I spoke to Chris Columbus, who directed Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. Welcome to Hogwarts. And that movie came in at about two hours and 30 minutes, which for a movie that's geared towards kids, I would say that's a little bit on the longer side. Mm -hmm. Now, in a few moments, you will pass through these doors and join your classmates. But before you can take your seats, you must be sorted into your houses. He said that the studio didn't give him any pushback about that running time because they had um, test screenings for the movie and kids would be sprinting to and from the bathroom because they didn't want to miss anything that was on the screen. And then after the movie was over, parents would say, oh, that was long. And kids would say, 
this part wasn't in the movie and this part wasn't in the movie and they would have watched an even longer cut of the movie because they were so enthusiastic about it. Okay, before we let you go, irrespective of length, tell me about movies that are coming out this summer that you're excited about. Um, one movie that I'm honestly curious about is Baz Luhrmann's Elvis musical biopic. It oh looks really big and bold. I love Baz Luhrmann's movies. I wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. Are you ready to fly? I'm ready. So that movie looks like it could be a fun one to watch in theaters. Jordan Peele, who directed Get Out, which is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite movies, he has a new movie coming out called Nope. And I typically hate horror movies, but he's a filmmaker where I feel like I'm intrigued enough to watch whatever he makes. Yeah, yeah. And then Sony has a movie coming out called Bullet Train, and it has a lot of big stars in it. One of them is Brad Pitt, and it's about assassins on a bullet train who all have a mission and don't know that they're working together, something like that. Oh, that's a cool premise. Yeah, it's an original movie, which is rare these days. (laughs) Usually summer (laughs) movie season is a lot of sequels and franchise movies. Adaptations. Exactly. And so this actually looks like an original movie that has a very A-list cast, an interesting premise, and it also looks funny in addition to be having a lot of cool action sequences. Is it going to be super long? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not too long. All right. Rebecca Rubin is a film and media reporter for Variety. Rebecca, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Stick around. Coming up next, we're going to play my favorite game in all of radio. Who said that? This message comes from NPR sponsor, Best Fiends. Why put off having fun for that so-called free time you keep hearing about? You already do enough to earn it. Best Fiends is the mobile puzzle adventure game that gives you a little fiendish fun anytime, anywhere. Customize your team of characters and find even more ways to win with year-round events. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. Plus get $5 of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Elise Hugh, and I'm here with Variety reporter Rebecca Rubin and her good friend, Fresh Air producer Seth Kelly. Hey, y'all. Hi. Hello. Welcome, Seth. (laughs) So happy to be here. Okay, we're going to play a game called Who Said That? Here are the rules. I'll share a quote with you that you might have heard in the news this week, and you guess who said that or what it's about. There are no buzzers. You can just yell out the answer. And in keeping with IBAM tradition, there are zero prizes. You win nothing. (laughs) Just bragging rights. Are y'all ready? No. Oh, yeah. So ready. Yeah, we talked about this before, (laughs) and we've already agreed that we're both going to flop really badly. So we're prepared to flop together. So no cramming? You haven't been cramming the news headlines or anything? (laughs) No. (laughs) But now I'm feeling like I should have. Going into it cold. All right. This is a competition that could change the nature of your friendship, your long-running friendship forever. Oh, gosh. Stakes. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. For the first one, you can fill in the blank or just tell me who said it. Here we go. Hi, we're blank, and it is a great honor to be invited to the White House today to be able to discuss the important issues. BTS. Oh, 
room <laughs> of anti-Asian hate crimes, Asian inclusion, and diversity. <laughs> Sorry, I knew it, and I couldn't let the opportunity pass me. I know. Come on. You have to wait for the quote to end. Are you BTS ARMY, Rebecca? I'm, you know, I follow the news, of course. Who isn't? <laughs> They're great performers. <laughs> and the quote was from RM, one of the members of the band BTS, and they were at the White House on, what, Tuesday? Um, It was the last day of AAPI Heritage Month, and they were using their enormous platform to talk about the issues facing the Asian American community. They had a conversation and photo op with President Biden. Okay, that was one for Rebecca. Rebecca, you're one up. Here we go. Next quote. You can fill in the blank for this one, too. There are more than 20 million sentient species in the blank galaxy. Don't choose to be a racist. Okay, this is Star Wars related, but I already got it. Cool. I don't know what the galaxy title is, but I know that there was backlash about somebody that Star Wars actors were coming to the defense of. That's right. That's right. Seth, do you know anything about this? No, no. (laughs) I'm so embarrassed now. Okay, let me give you all the context. Yes, thank you. Please. That was the Star Wars galaxy, the official Star Wars Twitter And what it said in a tweet after Moses Ingram, one of the stars of the new series Obi-Wan Kenobi, shared racist messages that she's received from fans of the franchise. So the Star Wars official account there and Ewan McGregor, who plays Obi-Wan, came to her support. Yeah, it made me happy that that people were coming to her defense because this unfortunately happens so much in these big franchises and... It probably just makes actors wary about taking roles that opens them up to so much scrutiny for reasons beyond their control. Yeah, so much backlash. And why wouldn't there be people of color in the galaxy? It's huge. Definitely. Have y'all been watching Obi-Wan at all? I can't say that I have been. (laughs) I will say that one thing Star Wars related is that when I worked at Variety, I got to cover one of the Star Wars celebration uh, conferences and it was it was absolutely wild just seeing the fandom like I remember I brought my Star Wars t-shirt like because I had a Star Wars t-shirt and I was like oh yeah look at me I'm gonna blend right in and like me wearing a Star Wars t-shirt like was the most like the biggest thing that I could do to stand out everybody yeah. was in like full costume full regalia <laughs> like walking their droids and uh <laughs> I looked like such a loser <laughs> I love that I'm terrible. I I binge watched all of the movies before the most recent one, The Rise of Skywalker, came out. And so I'm like, my awareness is very low. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you still got it right. You still you're still up two to nothing on Seth Kelly. Oof, I got to step it up. You can't you can't even catch up now. You can't catch up now. (laughs) That last one can be worth two points. All right. We can make the last one worth two points. Good. Last one could tie it up. Here we go. And you might know this. If you told me that I literally had to eat poop every single day and I would look younger, I might. Uh, <laughs> you got to just go for it, Seth. You got to. Gwyneth Paltrow? In the same city. Um, Kim Kardashian? You got it. Oh, my goodness. You tied really? it up. You tied it up. Amazing. I was not going to guess that. That was Kim Kardashian to the New York Times talking about her new skincare line and her apparent willingness to try anything for beauty, which is too equated with youth. And I have a big issue with that. Does her quote make people more or less likely to want to try that makeup line? (laughs) Oh, you mean her skincare makeup line? Yeah, she's willing to do anything. What is she putting in it? Yeah, that's true. 
questionable. Questionable. All right. That was pretty great. And then Seth, because your friend so generously offered to give two points to the, getting the last answer right, you ended up tying it up. I don't like it, but I'll take it. <laughs> How lovely. Great game. Big thanks to Variety reporter Rebecca Rubin and Fresh Air producer Seth Kelly. Thank you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Elisa's daughter, Ava. Now it's time to end the show like we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear them. Yo, this is Liz in London, England. And the best thing that happened to me this week was finally getting to hang with my bestie Elise after nearly two and a half years of... COVID and lockdowns and restricted travel and all that good stuff. Uh, And I'm back in London already missing her and her sweet girls, but my heart is so full. Hey y'all, it has been a minute. This is Katie and my favorite thing from this week was watching my 15-year-old daughter at her violin recital. At her recital, she did such an amazing job and she just blew everyone in the room away with her talent. I was just so happy. Um, It brought me to tears. So that was my favorite thing from this week. Hi, IBAM team. My name is Meg, and I am in Washington, D.C. The best thing that happened to me this week was spending the long weekend with my brother and his boyfriend in Boston. It was great to see a new city and to spend some time with the people I love. Thanks for the show. Y'all, I love this segment. Thank you so much to the listeners you heard there. Liz, of course, Katie, and Meg. Listeners, you can send your best thing to us anytime during the week. Just record yourself and send a voice memo to our email address, ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. All right, this week's episode was produced by Barton Girdwood, Liam McBain, Chloe Weiner, and Janet Ujung Lee. Our editors are Jessica Mendoza and Tamar Charney. Our director of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. So until next time, take care, y'all. I'm Elise Hugh. We'll talk soon.